Seventh-day Adventism is the topic for today, and uh, it's an interesting one because there's actually, we're going to talk about it in a minute, there's a little bit of debate, more than a little bit of debate, about is Seventh-day Adventism a Christian denomination with some things that are off, or is it an altogether like cult that's not uh, Christian at all? So there's some debate about that. And, it's, it, and, and for some people, the view has changed over time. Like initially, it was widely viewed as a cult. And then some things have changed as their doctrines been more uh, recorded and more put down officially. And so, so there's some discussion over that. Um, so, but we're going to cover it because, number one, it's not that clear. And then you can kind of know what the issues are and, uh, and work through it. And so uh, we're going to take a look at Seventh-day Adventists. So we're going to go look at the history. It really starts with a guy named William Miller. He was born in 1782 in Massachusetts, came out of a Baptist family, became a deist early in his life. But then he got saved during the Second Great Awakening in 1816, and he became a passionate student of the Bible. Uh, he particularly was fascinated with prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation. So one of the hallmarks of Adventism is going to be prophecy, looking ahead. I mean, that's the name, right? If you, if you, if you go to the name Seventh-day Adventist, why is that the name? Uh, seventh day, because they believe in the seventh day, Saturday, Sabbath. And, and they worship on the seventh day, not, not on Sunday. And then Adventist, because if you, know, you heard Christ's coming is one of the words for that is, ad, is Advent, right? His first Advent was Christ's first coming. The second Advent is his return. So there's an emphasis, a focus on his second coming, the prophecy and that, that, you know, what's going to happen. So that's, this guy was really fascinated with that. Uh, he, was, he was fascinated with Daniel and Revelation. And the prophecy is a big thing in Seventh-day Adventism. And what he did is he worked through what he thought was, I guess, scriptural to figure out when Jesus would return. And his theory was, well, he thought that the Bible gave the precise dates of Noah's flood, which as far as I understand, it doesn't. (laughs) Um, But he apparently believed that the Bible gave a precise date of Noah's flood. I've never uh, seen that there's a precise date there that you could figure out. Uh, He also believed there was a precise date to Israel's uh, sojourn from Egypt. That's also not true. Uh, We believe that the uh, exodus from Egypt was around 1446 BC, but it's not actually completely from Scripture. We, have, we, we use that based on other records from, some, from Assyria and also even scientific knowledge about when eclipses occurred. And using some of that, we, we kind of combine the records and assuming those hold up with the biblical record, then we can kind of get a date. But it's not, if you just were in the scriptures, we don't really have a date for the Exodus either. But apparently he was convinced we do. So he thought, okay, we have the date for Noah's flood, we have the date for the Exodus, so surely we can find a precise date for Jesus' second coming. And he makes a prediction. He predicts uh, on March 21, 1843, he predicts that within a year, Jesus is going to come back. Okay, how did he do that? Well, it's on your paper there. I'm not going to run through it too much, but basically he, he goes in Daniel and he, ha- he starts with a date uh, that he believes Artaxerxes commanded the rebuilding of Jerusalem in 457. And he takes this passage in Daniel 8, talking about 2300 
evenings and mornings. And he says, will those each stand for a year? And he adds 2,300, and he ends up predicting 1843. Okay, so that's his prediction. 1843, so from within a year, Jesus is going to come, so it could be as late as March 21, 1844. He writes a book about it titled Evidences from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1843. And he goes around on lecture tours and he gathers all these followers and he gets to the point of something like 100,000 people start following him. And we would usually call these Millerites because they're following William Miller. Well, here's what he wrote in his book. I believe the time can be known by all who desire to understand and to be ready for his coming. Which is interesting because doesn't the Bible say that no one knows? That <laughs> it's not for us to know? So it's interesting that he comes to the conclusion as if God wants us to know. Uh, and I am fully convinced that sometime between March 21, 1843 and 1844, according to the Jewish mode of computation at time, Christ will come and bring all his saints with him and then he will reward every man as his work shall be. So that's his prediction right there in his book. Well, guess what happens? Jesus does not come back, right? March 21, 1844, comes and goes. Jesus does not come back on that date. And so he admits his error, but he still thinks Jesus is coming soon. But certainly that that threw them for a loop because the prediction didn't come true. They convened a meeting in New Hampshire and made a new prediction. And the new date became October 22, 1844, on the Festival of Atonement. So they pushed it back a little to October 22, 1844. Well, what do you know? That date comes and goes, and Jesus does not come back. So this is now known as the Great Disappointment, because they're all very, very disappointed. And they're 0 for 2 now on the predictions. Um, and, you know, obviously this, this might shake some people's beliefs. So certainly, you know, a number of people would leave the movement over this. Um, But there were some that still remained faithful to it. And uh, this is what he wrote after the great disappointment. He said, were I to live my life over again with the same evidence that I then had to be honest with God and man, I should have to do as I have done. Although opposers said it would not come, they produced no weighty arguments. It was evidently guesswork with them. And then I then thought that, that and do now that their denial was based more on an unwillingness for the Lord to come than on any arguments leading to such a conclusion. I confess my error and acknowledge my disappointment, yet I still believe that the day of the Lord is near, even at the door, and I exhort you, my brethren, to be watchful and not let that day come upon you unawares. Okay, so he, I mean, he says he admits he's wrong, but he kind of says he would do the same thing if he had it to do over again. Um, so he doesn't understand why he's wrong, I guess, and he still thinks that you know, it's to be known when the scripture says that it's not for us to know. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, but he is kind of left in the place where I think that where God does want us, where we are waiting and ready and any time now, right? Uh, the word that's often used is that Christ's second return is imminent. And what that means is there's not really anything that has to happen prophetically before, the, before he comes back. So it could be any day. And that's kind of, the, kind of where we want to be at, right? We want to be ready. We want to be sober-minded. We want to be watchful. And so this idea of, yeah, him being, being at the door, the day of the Lord being near. Um, yeah, we want to have that, that view. All right, so what, what happens out of that? 
Um, well, in April 1845, there's a meeting in Albany, New York, and the Millerites spell out their core beliefs about the second coming, the resurrection, and the destruction and renewal of the earth. So you've got some of their beliefs written down next on your paper there. So, um, yeah, why don't you take a few minutes and look through those? Let's spend a little bit of time on those and just see, just real quick. Um, take maybe like five, five, ten minutes and see which one of those things do we agree with. Let's see first, like, which ones can we for sure agree on? I think um, number two and number three, right? Uh, there was some question where some people weren't just sure with the language, what visible and personal meant. Uh, but my understanding is that's talking about that Jesus is going to come visibly and in person. So I think we all agree with that. So we would agree with number two that he's already come once visibly and personally. He's going to come again visibly and personally. So we agree with that. Uh, we just mentioned right before that we broke up into groups, number three, that the second coming of Christ we view as imminent, meaning nothing else uh, prophetically has to happen. We're not waiting for another sign. It could happen any day. And then um, we probably agree with number one. Uh, second Peter 3 would be the place to go. Second Peter 3, 7 uh, says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then uh, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Um, and, you know, there's some question about, I guess, debate about whether destroyed, some people think literally it's all going to be gone and then a new earth. And then some people think that more like, well, the whole surface is all going to be marred and destroyed and then it's going to be remade but we're not really looking to nitpick on on the definition there of destroyed so i would say we we agree uh basically with number one um the other ones um number four what do you think it was phrased a little oddly um so there was some debate like when i read it i was thinking just basically salvation because who's going to go into the millennial reign at least in in the pre-mail view is believers so I was understanding when I first read it that we're talking about just what's the condition, you know, what does it take to be saved? And repentance and faith sound good. I was a little iffy on godly, watchful life. Is that a, is that a work that's required or are we talking about fruit that would come? So we'd have to talk through what do you mean by that? So I would put a question mark at least. Um, there were some others that made a good point. Again, this is going to depend a little bit on your view of the millennium. So whichever view you hold may change this a little bit. Um, but even in, in the premillennial view where we think uh, the, the millennium is going to begin with only believers, um, the ones who, who survive through the tribulation and are going to be having children, by the end of the millennium, they have children as numerous as the sand of the sea that are, that are against Christ. So there's going to be unbelievers in the millennial kingdom. So if we're just talking about who's in the millennial kingdom at some point, well, it's not all believers, even though we think it starts that way. But, it's, but there are going to be unbelievers in the millennial reign under Christ. So that would be, if you believe, you know, if that's how you think they're asking that question, then the answer would be no, for sure. Um, so either way, there's at least a question on number four. Uh, maybe a no on number four. But definitely a question, if they're talking about salvation, are we including some measure of a godly, watchful life in that? All right, number five. What do you think? I gave uh, some of you... A couple passages to look at. Five. 
Uh, Daniel 12, 2 was one passage. Daniel 2 talks about the tribulation and then says, uh, 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, uh, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Revelation 20 is probably better on that. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast to its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is before the millennium. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. So this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And then you go down after the thousand years, verse 7. So verse 11, the great white throne judgment. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by that, by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And then uh, death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. Verse 14, this is the second death. 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, which these people's names are not in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Number six. And this one, I think some people had a little trouble understanding what six is getting at. Um, Departed believers do not enter paradise in soul and spirit until the final blessedness of the everlasting kingdom is revealed at the second coming of Christ. But what I I think this this is heading towards is the Adventists actually believe in soul sleep. So they believe that nobody's conscious after they've died until the resurrection. And uh, the example I would think, somebody mentioned uh, uh, Lazarus and the rich man is one, one example. We're conscious after death. And the other would be the thief on the cross where Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the idea that nobody's going to be in paradise until later, we wouldn't agree with that. Okay, but I think it's, it's, gonna, it's leading to soul sleep is one of the Adventist beliefs. All right, but sorry. Soul sleep. So soul sleep is the idea that when anyone dies, they're, un- they're not conscious. So you're just like asleep until the resurrection. So that would say, so the problem with that is Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say after you get resurrected, you'll be with me. He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So that implies that he's going to be in paradise with Jesus conscious. Um, and then the Lazarus and the rich man, same deal. Uh, Lazarus and the rich man, um, Again, depending if you believe it as a parable or, or a real history, either way, is he's portrayed as conscious, in conscious torment. Corey? And Paul said to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah. So that doesn't really mean being for the sleep Yeah, that's right. That's good. All right. Let's, so that's, that's just uh, the Miller, that's some of the Millerites' beliefs that they kind of codified and put together in 1845. Let's keep going, though, because we've got to get to actually who are the Adventists. So they have a lot of those uh, views as well. Um, 1849, Miller died, and three groups came out of the Millerites, each with their own kind of key doctrine. So this is really what's going to become the Seventh-day Adventists, these three different groups with these three key doctrines. Uh, so there was a New York group, Hiram Edson. His, the key belief was the Heavenly Sanctuary. Okay, so this is one group that was in New York, and I, apparently he came up with this belief the very day after the Great Disappointment. 
Uh, supposedly, he was walking in a cornfield with a friend when he received a revelation. And it says, suddenly there burst upon his mind the thought that there were two phases to Christ's ministry in the heaven of heavens, just as in the earthly sanctuary of old. In his own words, an overwhelming conviction came over him that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the 10th day of the seventh month, so instead of Jesus coming to earth on that predicted day, uh, he for the first time entered on that day the second apartment of that sanctuary, and he had work to perform in the most holy before coming to this earth. So basically they explained away, oh, we weren't mistaken on the date, we were mistaken on that we thought Jesus was coming to earth. We thought the sanctuary that he was coming to was that he was going to cleanse the earth. But actually, in heaven, they basically are saying the heavenly sanctuary is pictured by, you know, the tabernacle, the temple where you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. So their explanation is, well, on that date that we predicted, actually Jesus was moving from the heavenly holy place to the holiest place. That's what happened in 1844. That's the explanation they come up with. Yeah. So he moved there to do, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit what he's doing there. They call it uh, his investigative judgment. And that's what supposedly he's been doing there since and until he comes back. He'll come back when the investigative judgment is complete. So that was their explanation. So the... Uh, Heavenly sanctuary is a key belief from the New York group that is an Adventist belief. So that's going to be one of those that carries on. Uh, the second group was the Massachusetts New Hampshire group, which was headed by a retired sea captain named Joseph Bates. And their key belief was the seventh day Sabbath. Okay, that is also going to end up in the Adventist belief. So there's the second key doctrine. Sabbath on, observing Saturday Sabbath and worshiping on that day. And then the main group, the state of Maine, the main group where a key figure was Ellen G. White and her husband, uh, their key belief was in prophecy continuing today, uh, in particular prophecy going to Ellen G. White. Um, and so she, she wrote all kinds of books. She supposedly had over 2,000 dreams and visions, and she wrote 5,000 periodical articles and, over, and I think 40 books. Uh, some of them are, you might have heard of, The Great Controversy, The Desire of Ages. Uh, those are some of the books that she wrote. So there was a belief in new revelation through her in particular. Um, but even the other guy we had read about, right, who had that investigative judgment idea about the sanctuary, Hiram Edson, well, he was walking in the cornfield and had new revelation um, right there, it seemed. Um, okay, so that's what happened. Basically, these three groups formed, and then... They're going to end up merging. So they all come together. And that's the basic idea of Seventh-day Adventism. It's going to come from there. Okay, so there's a background of the Millerites, and then these three groups with their three key doctrines merges together, becomes the Adventist, first Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, in the 1860s, it becomes an official denomination. Um, but it's not that simple because different denominations within Adventism form. So I give you a whole bunch of lists if you want to look any of these up. Um, different groups that are part of that. And some of them don't believe in Ellen G. White. Or some of them don't hold to some of those doctrines. So there's different groups here. Uh, and actually the Adventists considered the Jehovah's Witnesses a break off of them. 
So you'll notice number number three, Jehovah's Witnesses is, is here under the Adventists as a denomination of the Adventists. So they claim the JWs um, under themselves. Because Charles Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witness, was deeply influenced by the Adventists' movement from the 1800s. Um, so they, they consider that under them. And there's a number of other ones, but the one we're really going to focus on, because it's the largest one, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, number 10. Uh, as mentioned, they're called that because the seventh day is the belief in the, that we need to still observe the Sabbath, and the Adventist uh, is focusing on Christ's imminent second coming. So that's why it's called Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, there are about 1.3 million members in the U.S. and Canada, but over 22 million baptized members worldwide, some 95,300 Seventh-day Adventist churches. Uh, there's a lot of hospitals and schools that are Adventist as well. In fact, my aunt worked at an Adventist hospital in California for a long time. They have 57 publishing houses, um, 2,000 hospitals, nursing homes, clinics. Uh, interesting tidbit, not really important, but they're heavily involved in the breakfast cereal and other food industries. Um, here's here's a, quote, uh, artic- a quote from an article in Wikipedia that notes, uh, the pioneers of the Adventist church had much to do with the common acceptance of breakfast cereals and meat alternatives into the Western diet. John Harvey Kellogg started the meat alternative movement by creating protose at Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was later sold through the mail by Battle Creek Food Company. Uh, they mostly manufactured meat alternatives there at the sanitarium, but then basically Kellogg, Keith Kellogg, John Harvey invented cornflakes there, and then they start selling um, cereals, Rice Krispies, flakes, so they invented a lot of the breakfast cereals. Um, and meat substitutes. So that's another thing. I guess we haven't said it, but another note on Adventists is, is they're, usually, they're not going to eat meat. Okay? If they fall, they're not going to eat meat. So that's another where we might say kind of a, is it a dietary law or is it becoming legalism? Where is it? But they're, they're not going to eat meat. In uh, 1872, they published their beliefs. So this is where they're starting to say, what do they officially believe? Uh, a synopsis of the faith in 1872. At first, a lot of these groups were rejected the Trinity. So a lot of these groups were indeed really far off. And Ellen G. White is actually credited with steering them towards belief in the Trinity. So they do, they do hold to the Trinity, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists do. I don't know about every one of those subgroups in there. But the Seventh-day Adventists do believe in the Trinity, as we do. Um, In 1957, they released the first definitive and comprehensive explanation of their faith called Questions on Doctrine. And then they released 27 fundamental beliefs in 1980. So as these are coming out, it's becoming more clear what their official stance is. And then they added one in 2005, having 28 fundamental beliefs. So this is where some people, uh, Walter Martin, uh, he wrote the book called The Kingdom of Cults. And Walter Martin kind of, I believe he originally considered them a cult. And then he came around later, after some of these things came out, after dialogue with leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And he's come around to, to not necessarily say that they're a cult any longer. Um, so that's, the, that's one of the questions. Like As we look at the beliefs, 
where do they fit in? You know, and the reality is we would agree with most of their beliefs. I mean, we agreed probably with most of the Millerite beliefs we just looked at, but the same would be true of the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventists. So the, the question then is, are Adventists Christian? Right? Are they Christian or are they a cult? And of course, you know, we can't really include everybody in it, right? But we mean like, by, is their doctrine, is it, you know, is it often the key areas that would make it uh, a cult? Or is it just a, a Christian denomination that has some beliefs that we believe are against Scripture? Um, so Walter Martin wrote this. This is the conclusion he came to. He said, it is my conviction that one cannot be a true Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Christian scientist, Unitarian spiritist, and be a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. But it is perfectly possible to be a Seventh-day Adventist and be a true follower of Jesus Christ despite certain heterodox concepts, basically some errant doctrines. Okay, so you might, so you could compare that idea maybe to like, um, I'm, you know, somebody like we could say maybe a Pentecostal. We wouldn't agree with some of what Pentecostalism would teach, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the right gospel and the right God. I mean, it depends on how far you go down, right? So, uh, is it is it is it like that? Where okay, these these it's a legit denomination, or is it so far off that we'd say this isn't even Christianity anymore? And he's saying he doesn't think it's that. He thinks it's uh, it agrees with uh, the with, uh, Orthodox Christianity on the main issues. Okay. Yes. They don't deny the Trinity. They do not deny the Trinity. They did it for a lot of the groups, subgroups did, and Ellen G. White is credited with steering them toward the Trinitarian view, which is their official doctrine. So there could be some of those subgroup Adventist groups that don't, but the Seventh day Adventist right. believes in the Trinity. Yeah, they wouldn't be considered a cult because they, like the Roman Catholic, they won't be considered a cult because they believe in the Trinity. That's from my understanding of what the final Okay, I'll get there in uh, two, two slides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so Anthony Hokema, who wrote a book called The Four Cults, and he put them in as a cult, uh, but this was a long time ago. Uh, again, they've, they've kind of made their doctrine more clear. Here's what, but Hokema says this, even though he considered them a cult, he said, we are thankful for the Adventist affirmation of the infallibility of the Bible, of the Trinity, and the full deity of Jesus Christ. We gratefully acknowledge their teachings on creation and providence, on the incarnation and resurrection of Christ, on the absolute necessity for regeneration, on sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and on Christ's literal return. So he's stating a number of things that we would agree with the Adventist doctrine on. Okay, So... Yeah, what is a cult, Henry asked. So, that, I mean, that, what's our definition? I'm going to punt to uh, Nathan Busnitz, who teaches historical theology at Master's Seminary. I think Matt Riker might have used the same thing when he looked at Mormons. But he basically, the way he describes a cult is three S's. So he says, this is, this is what we're looking for. Do they have a wrong view of the scripture, the savior, and salvation? If they do, he's going to term them a cult. Okay, so that's the operation. That's the definition I'm going to go by. You know, you could have a different definition, but that's the one that I'm going to use. So, a wrong view of Scripture, the Savior, and salvation. So, where this becomes iffy is, they seem to have the right view of salvation. They seem to have the right view of the Savior. 
I mean, we haven't, if you go through their 28 beliefs, um, and then they, at least it, what it says about Scripture is right. So the only question then is becomes, well, now you have this prophecy added in by Ellen G. White. How do you interact with that? It all says it right, though. It says that, okay, well, she's a prophet, but all things have to be checked against the Scripture. So they claim that her stuff is not put above Scripture, but there certainly have been examples where somebody's teaching. I remember reading about someone who was teaching at an Adventist church. They were teaching, I think they were probably teaching, one of the, one of the things we're going to look at that Adventists believe in is annihilationism. So they think that there's no eternal hell, that people just are destroyed and cease to exist. So I believe there was a, a pastor in their church that was teaching against annihilationism. So then he got brought up before the leadership. So when it comes down to that, who wins? So in his view, the Bible says there's no annihilationism. Ellen G. White says there is. And, and at that time, he was forced out. So, people, so you could use that case to say, well, in that case, at least practically speaking, Ellen G. White was put above the scriptures, even though the denomination says that's not the case. So you could see how this gets a little bit fuzzy, because officially they don't do that. But then they did do that, at least in that case. So, so that's why it, it, it's a little hard, but it, it's, def, it's plausible, right? And Martin takes, that's why Martin takes the view, and he says it's possible to be a Seventh-day Adventist and be a true follower of Jesus, despite those off beliefs that they're right on these three things, which at least is how uh, Dr. Busenitz defines a cult. So he would say it's not a cult. Uh, not Busenitz, uh, but Martin would say it's not a cult. Okay, so where does that leave us? Well, I think where it leaves us is if we have an Adventist friend, we want to talk to them and see, see where they are and see, are you all right on these things, right? Ask them about Christ. Ask them about salvation and, and work through those things uh, with them. And then, if you're convinced that this person is a fellow believer, then maybe you, you can then interact about these false uh, doctrines, you know, the ones that we would disagree with, like annihilationism, and take them to the scriptures and show them. So, I have a quick question. So, yeah. those are the three things that we have to kind of evaluate yeah. when it comes to that? Yeah. As per Dr. Brewster. Like, the essential. By his definition of a cult, yeah. So, he defines the cult as a group that violates those. They have a wrong view of all those things. Okay, um, so here's what he ends up saying. So Busnitz's conclusion is, in spite of the ecumenical spirit that has pervaded evangelicalism over the last few decades, there are still major deficiencies within the official Seventh-day Adventist theology that ought to give an evangelical Christian serious pause. <laughs> okay. So, to me, that kind of says, just be careful. Right? He doesn't say they're not. He doesn't say they are, but he says we really we should be careful. So uh, it's just kind of a warning to to consider that. Um, okay, so what we're going to do for the rest of the time then is we're going to look at those doctrinal differences. So if you if you have an Adventist friend, what I would say is that you want to talk to him, like we said, about Christ and about salvation, and see where they're at with that. I mean that's the that's the main thing. Is the person a believer? But if they have repented and believed, and then, you know, if you know that they have these errant doctrines, then you might want to go through that. But you really want to get to the gospel, okay? But because there's a good chance that the, your Adventist friend may be a believer, we're, we're, we're not going to say, oh, yeah, they're for sure unbelievers. We need to tear it down, right? But we, but we can, we do want to interact with what their beliefs are and where we might uh, disagree with them biblically. So we're going to look at how do we address the doctrinal differences, okay? So... Let's say your friend is a believer, but they're in the Seventh-day Adventist church and they believe in these different uh, things that we don't think are biblical. How would you go through 
with them on these issues. So we're going to go back into our groups and look at these questions. I'll just kind of summarize what these are and then uh, set you free to, to talk through it. So the first one is Saturday Sabbath. Fundamental belief number 20. So this is right from their doctrine. The fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of the seventh day Sabbath as the day of rest, worship, and ministry in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, so they believe that you, you need to keep the Sabbath. And in fact, the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches that the Sunday worship is the mark of the beast, spoken of in Revelation 17. Um, I was talking with some people today before class. It's going to depend on your friend how hardcore they are on this. There are some people who are in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who might tell you, you have the mark of the beast. You're damned because you worship on Sunday. That's not their official teaching. Their official teaching is, uh, by Ellen G. White's words, that, you, that is the mark of the beast, but it seems like, from what I've read, that she's saying, uh, in fact, I can tell you right here, um, our doctrinal positions are based on the Bible, not upon Mrs. White's writings, says their, their beliefs. But the following was, uh, this was penned by her in 1899. So she wrote this. No one has received the mark of the beast. The testing time has not yet come. There are true Christians in every church, uh, even the Roman Catholic Church. None are condemned until they have had the light and seen the obligation of the fourth commandment. But when the decree shall go forth enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath, so she's talking about Antichrist and, and, and in, the, in the coming time, and then they're basically, if you take it then, you've accepted the mark of the beast and you're damned. So she doesn't officially say that you have it if you worship on Sunday right now. But that's, that's the sign that's going to be required of you if you're there in the end time. And if you take it then, then you've sealed your fate. Uh, but regardless, the Seventh-day Adventists will not look positively on worshiping on Sunday. Because that's ultimately the mark of the beast. They consider it false worship. So that's their first view. Saturday Sabbath, uh, day of rest, but also the worship needs to be on Saturday for Adventists. Their second fundamental belief, Ellen G. White's prophecy. Okay, their third fundamental belief, annihilationism. Okay, there's no eternal, uh, eternal punishment for unrepentant sinners. Uh, when you read in Revelation 20 about the lake of fire, uh, they would say that they're destroyed. Destroyed as in cease to exist. Okay, that's going to be one of the questions as you consider some of the passages about the fate of unrepentant unbelievers. Uh, when the Bible uses the word destroy, does that mean cease to exist? Because people that believe in annihilationism will argue that. Uh, the next claim, uh, belief, unconscious state of the dead. That's another hallmark. We mentioned this earlier, soul sleep. I think we already addressed how to address that one, so you could probably skip that one. But basically, that's the belief that everybody falls asleep till the resurrection. Nobody's conscious when they've died. But uh, the, the thief on the cross is one example, and we mentioned some others. Uh, then, investigative judgment. So what Jesus is supposedly doing after that 1844 date, investigative judgment, uh, sanctuary doctrine. Just to explain that to you, Here's what it says in their fundamental belief number 24. In 1844, at the end of those 2300 years or days, he entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry, 
which was typified by the work of the high priest in the most holy place. Uh, it is a work of investigative judgment, which is part of the ultimate disposition of all sin. Uh, and then he basically says, uh, the investigative judgment reveals to heavenly intelligences who among the dead are asleep in Christ and therefore are in, in him and are worthy to have part in the first resurrection. Um, so basically he's, he's investigating and judging everybody to find out who's going to go to heaven. That's basically what's supposed to happen. So your job is to think about why that's not biblical. Okay. And then uh, that's pretty much, those are the main different beliefs they would have than us. Uh, there is a tendency to follow uh, kosher food laws, to be vegetarian. Uh, so there can be some legalism uh, in some branches, not all. I mean, this is true of, of Christian church, Protestant as well. Uh, sometimes there's places where there's no dancing, no rock music, no movies, absolutely forbidden. Uh, no body piercing, tattoos, maybe even no jewelry. In some of their uh, groups, they don't even allow wearing of wedding rings, uh, not adorning yourself with jewelry at all. So there's different levels of where this can become very legalistic. Um, so you might see a tendency toward legalism in Adventism as well. But let's spend the rest of the time. You don't have a lot of time, but maybe 15 or 20 minutes to go through some of those doctrines that we would disagree with. <laughs>